This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I just had this uh, premonition, this intuitiveness that something was going to happen. In 1985, Dr. Lanice Bias and her husband James were content. Their sons Jay and Eric and their daughter Michelle were all healthy and living at home. And then there was their oldest son, Lynn. He was on top of the world. Lynn was thriving. A six-foot-eight senior forward at the University of Maryland, he was perhaps the best college basketball player in the country. A powerful athlete with a perfect jumper, poised for NBA superstardom. His athleticism drew frequent comparisons to another young star already in the league, Michael Jordan. And for Lanice, her son's rise was incredible to watch. Seeing him as a player and as a person on the brink of fulfilling his dream, it was so exciting to go out to Cold Field House and to see him play and then just to see him mature in his game and to the end when he was a powerhouse. It was actually unbelievable. I, I could not believe it. It was like a dream. It really was. But still, throughout her son's senior season, in the back of her mind, Lenise held that sense of unease. Her son had entered a world of infinite possibility. He had fame, he was near riches, and more importantly, whether on the basketball court or off it, he exuded joy. People would say, oh, I know you're so excited about your son. And I, I can remember telling someone, it's like you can see a gold ring, but you don't think you're gonna be able to touch it. It just didn't feel like it was going to happen to me. And it wasn't that it was too good to be true. It was something weightier down in me that was a truth that what looks like is going to happen is not going to take place. So while she experienced these moments of pride, watching her son do what few people on earth could do on a basketball court, she also felt this weight. I knew something was going to happen, and I, I was just so sad. It was something in me telling me something is coming. Something is coming. 
I knew death was coming. A local success story took a tragic turn this morning. Tonight, his success story has ended in tragedy with his sudden death at the age of 22. Len Bias had come a long way and was about to reach for new heights when suddenly, tragically, his life ended. Once again, 22-year-old Len Bias, star forward from the University of Maryland basketball team, is now dead. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Len Bias story. I'm your host, Jordan Ritter-Kahn. Bias's death on June 19, 1986, is one of the defining sports stories of the 80s. Bias grows up in Maryland, goes to his hometown school, and becomes a sensation. He's drafted by the Boston Celtics, second overall in 1986, set to join a team that was already one of the best in NBA history. The night after the draft, he celebrates with some friends, does lines of cocaine. He collapses, convulses with seizures. And the next morning, at 22 years old, he dies. Lynn Bias represents so many things to so many people. For Marylanders, he represents a homegrown star, the very best of their state. For Bostonians, he represents the possibility of extending their dynasty another decade. For college hoops fans of a certain generation, he's one of the greatest talents they ever saw. For that same generation of NBA fans, Bias is the foil Michael Jordan never had. And that's just on the basketball court. Bias's death reverberated far beyond the world of sports. His death poured gasoline on the national panic around cocaine. Democrats and Republicans raced each other to pass harsh laws, nominally, at least, in Bias's memory. And as a result, thousands of people, a hugely disproportionate number of them Black, spent years in prison unjustly. His life was extraordinary. His death was seismic. And his legacy? It still impacts the worlds of sports, politics, and culture today, 35 years later. But no matter how grand his public legacy, for Lenise Bias, Lynn is first and foremost her son. As I spent time re-examining his impact, I kept coming back to his mother's words. I am a woman of faith, and I believe that Sometimes you can have dreams and feelings and it's like warnings of, you know, what's going to come. I don't know how to explain it so that um, the listeners will understand, but it's, it's more spiritual for me in terms of what I was feeling. It was almost like a preparation because I grieved 18 months before Len's death. Even in the face of incredible grief, Lenny's remained calm, steady. But so much of the world reacted to Lynn's death with anger and confusion. In the months that followed, the media and the public felt this need to point to something or someone to blame for Bias's death. The tragedy felt too massive and shattering to be left unexplained. Maybe, some people thought in the aftermath, this was Bias's fault for doing coke. Or maybe it was a classic case of a good kid getting caught up with the wrong crowd. In some minds, the University of Maryland failed bias. In others, blame lay with a drug culture that local and federal governments had allowed to spiral out of control. Bias's death reverberated throughout his family, 
through professional basketball and all of higher education, through the NCAA and the justice system. His story made its way into church pulpits and into the halls of Congress. It's been 35 years and Lenise is still stunned by just how much her son's story means. I really didn't know who Len was until he died. I knew that he was my son. We went to his games and people liked him and it was a lot of media around him. But until his death, I just saw him impacting Prince George's County, Maryland, where we live, Washington, D.C., the DMV, the ACC, like that. But this man made impact around the world. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Before he was a phenom, Bias arrived at Maryland as just another promising recruit eager to earn his place on the floor. And for a while, he couldn't. I made a mistake. Back in those days, you didn't play freshman. That's Lefty Drizel. He's a legend in Maryland, and he was the Terrapins coach when Bias arrived on campus from a mile and a half away at Northwestern High School in 1982. If you start a freshman or play freshman, you're going to lose a couple games because you're playing him. You know, I guess it's experience. It's back then, every, nobody played freshman much. I know I didn't start Leonard as a freshman, which I should have. That was a mistake on my part. Soon enough, though, Bias forced his way onto the court. He was the most talented player on Maryland's roster. Even as a teenager, he looked like a fully grown man. Thick, chiseled, physical enough to challenge any upperclassman in the paint. But he also had a balletic kind of elegance to him. A soft touch on the jumper, a dexterity to finish with either hand. When point guard Keith Gatlin joined Maryland's roster in 1983, he saw all of this on full display. He had something that was God-gifted talent where, you know, his athleticism was off the charts. He had a sweet jump shot for him to be 6'8". So it was just like when he elevated to shoot his jump shot, you couldn't get to it. Athletically, he could fly over the rim. He could, you know, a very graceful athlete. Lefty knew what kind of talent Bias had. Well, his physical ability was unbelievable. You know what I mean? He was the only athlete at Maryland when he was there that could bench press 300 pounds. I mean, he was strong, he was physical, you know, he could chip out of the gym. He dunked over anyone, anywhere, anytime he damn well pleased. Think of the most physical dunking forwards you've seen. Blake Griffin, Dominique Wilkins, Sean Kemp. Fluid and forceful, vicious, but smooth. Think that. And when he stepped away from the basket, he could launch from anywhere. And he had this feathery soft touch whether from 10 feet or 25. ESPN Scott Van Pelt, who was a Maryland student back then, remembers watching Bias. 
Physically, he looked different than everyone else. It was a bit like LeBron James, just it, he was thinner. But his upper body, you know, his shoulders were like this Greek god. His waist was like 30 inches. He would dunk on your head. And it was alley-oop, alley-oop, alley-oop. And you could alley-oop to him from anywhere because he could go get it. So, I mean, it was just obvious physicality that was just different from anyone else, really, I think it's fair to say in that era. Van Pelt's ESPN colleague, Michael Wilbon, covered Maryland for the Washington Post at the time. There was power and explosion in him that allowed him to throw down dunks that would have created a Dominique Wilkins-like sensation. But in reporting this podcast, honestly, nothing got people more excited than talking about Bias's jump shot. Here's Lefty. He was a perfect jump shot. And Molly Dunham Glassman, who covered Maryland for the Baltimore Evening Sun. The effortlessness and the height that he would achieve when he went straight up. I mean, he was floating. Scott Van Pelt did his best to describe the experience of watching Bias rise and shoot. He had the most perfect jump shot you've ever seen because he's 6'8", but he jumped straight up and down, always on balance. And it was like he jumped three and a half feet off the ground and let go of it. Like, watch the ball when it goes through the net. Like, I'm not kidding. It feels like it goes through the net different because it always was with, like, this perfect rotation and arc. And he was already three feet off the ground to start with. When Wilbon talks about the jumper, he sounds like he needs a cigarette. It was beautiful. I I see it in my head. Look, you asked me about him. What was the first thing I said? Jump shot. He had a jump shot at a time when six, eight kids didn't really necessarily have jump shots. Six, six kids didn't necessarily have them. Michael Jordan didn't have one at a similar stage at North Carolina, but Bias had it. It's the most picturesque jump shot I think I've ever seen to this day. So, on the floor, he was incredible. And off it, he was beloved. Here's Van Pelt. Leonard was, I mean, the biggest person on campus. And I knew him enough that he'd give me a nod or give me a what's up if I saw him at the student union. And as a kid in Ellicott Hall, like you'd float back to the dorm because Leonard, who was the like big man on campus, fuck that. Excuse my language. He was the man on campus, not the big man. He was the, in capital letters, man on campus. Bias could be quiet and reserved in some settings, but his teammate, forward Derek Lewis, says he relished his status at Maryland. I mean, I think you enjoy it. I think everybody enjoys it to an extent, you know, where, you know, you can walk out and somebody's going to going to recognize you. But he was always nice to everyone. I never saw him treat anyone mean. I never saw him turn on a, a person asking for an autograph. And people ask for an autograph all the time. You know, you never saw him brush anybody off. He was never rude to him. You know, people loved him. There are a few inflection points in Bias's rise to stardom. For Molly, a game against Michael Jordan in North Carolina during Bias's sophomore year stands out. A game where Bias seemed like more than just an incandescent talent, where he seemed like a leader. You could see him as a sophomore take that team as his own and really take command of that team. In the huddles, you could see it. His will to win really started to show that sophomore year. The skills had always been there. The body, the athleticism, the shooting stroke. But now his confidence was starting to catch up. Molly saw it again in Bias's sophomore year at the ACC tournament. He scored 26 points in the title game win over Duke, 
and was named tournament MVP. And Lenny just took that team on his shoulders and ran with it that entire tournament, especially the final game. I He was just phenomenal. His field goal percentage, his rebounding. That was what really was starting to come around his sophomore year, his inside game. And that's when you could tell he was destined for great things. By his junior year, Bias was in full command on the floor. He was starting to feel, okay, I am a good player. I can't be dominant at the things that I do. Here's Derek Lewis again. And he was starting to say, okay, I have to worry about or concern about you know, who's playing, who we're playing, or who's guarding me. And uh, you can see that, I mean, he had the confidence. By his senior year, Bias had emerged as perhaps the best player in the country. He could do anything he wanted anywhere on the court against any opponent. The numbers, 23 points and seven rebounds on 54% shooting. He led the ACC in scoring and was named Conference Player of the Year. But the stats only tell a fraction of the story. Bias had to be seen to be believed. And sometimes that's what his teammates did. And you just catch yourself watching sometimes. I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but I'm sitting there watching. I mean, I never saw anything like it on the college level. For Bias, the game just seemed so simple. We saw teams double and triple team him the whole season. They still averaged 20 plus points a game. Um, we ran one play. We ran the same play the whole season and nobody could stop it. And nobody could stop him. We ran the exact same play. Pull up the highlights of that Maryland season and you'll see it. The same play over and over again. Double screen on the block. Then he would run off the screen at the bottom, pop out. You give him the ball and then we just get out of the way. Len Bias, a man in motion off the ball. That baseline jumper, and boy, you can color it too. He is as good a baseline shooter as there is maybe in all of basketball. Keith Gatlin was the team's point guard, and he made it his mission to know everything about Bias's game. I knew once he got the ball in his sweet spots that was uh, 15 feet and in, or on the block, he could shoot his turnaround jump shot, he could catch lobs. A lot of people don't know Lynn was a powder if he didn't get the ball in his spots. And a lot of that powdering came toward me. Like, if you was a point guard, you would get me the ball here or there, <laughs> or here or there. So we joked about it a lot, but we met so well, I knew when he got behind the defense, he wanted the lob. I knew I could throw the lob at any time. Sometime I'd do it from half court because he was such a graceful athlete. And I knew if he didn't touch the ball three or four times down, he would pout. So, you know, uh, obviously he was such a great player. To his credit, he had to touch it. He necessarily didn't shoot the ball all the time, but he just had to touch it to feel like he was a part of it. This was a different era of college basketball. Back then, the NBA wasn't the cultural force it is today. David Stern was still early in his tenure. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were national superstars, but not global stars. Michael Jordan was becoming Michael Jordan, but his Bulls teams were still nowhere near contention. Not yet. And in college, players typically stayed four years. Fans really got to know these guys. Today, the sixth man on an NBA title contender is more famous than the biggest college star. Back then, players like Bias were more famous than the vast majority of pros. Here's how the Boston Globe's Chad Fenn remembers it. That was the height of college basketball to me, the mid-80s, the Big East and uh, the ACC. And that stretch from like 82 to 86 
the most important thing was it built up over years. You had rivalries, and not just among the schools or the towns, but among the players. Guys stayed. Uh, I, I'm not going to lament Zion Williamson leaving Duke after a year. It was the right thing to do. But back in those days, Patrick Ewing was at Georgetown for four years. Chris Mullen was at St. John for four years. You anticipated seeing those guys play each other, not over the course of a season, but over the course of four years. And that's just incredibly different from what we have now. And it allowed the interest to build and build and build. Covering college basketball around D.C. in the early to mid-80s, Mike Wilbon was surrounded by stars. There was Ewing at Georgetown, David Robinson at Navy, and Ralph Sampson at Virginia. If you ask me right now if I could recreate it, and I was going to, the first night, opening night, all these guys were in town, they were all playing at the same time, who would I go and see? I'd go and see Lenny. Bias didn't disappoint. He famously dropped 41 points and lost to Duke his senior year. And a few weeks later, he played another game that really elevated Bias to that level of national superstardom. Unranked Maryland versus number one North Carolina down in Chapel Hill. The home of number one ranked North Carolina. A crowd of more than 22,000 is on hand to watch the Tar Heels take on the Maryland Terrapin. Michael Jordan was gone, but the Heels still had Brad Doherty, who would go on to be the number one overall pick and make five NBA All-Star teams. And they had Kenny Smith, a future NBA champion, and now even more famous as a TNT broadcaster. And they were playing in their brand new gorgeous arena, the Dean Dome, named after their legendary coach, Dean Smith. It was a loaded team. Derek Lewis again. Obviously you always go in wanting to win a game, but we knew that the odds were stacked so high. For Maryland, the game did not start off well. Carolina got up big by up to 15 points in the second half. But Keith Gatlin remembers how the Terps started cutting it down, possession after possession, stop after stop. We kept chipping at it, chipping at it. The whole team was playing their asses off. But if it wasn't for bias, things would have ended differently. Lynn was incredible. If it would have been three-pointers at that particular time, he might have had 50. I think he finished with like 35 or 36, but he was incredible. And and to just see how the crowd was like obviously against us, but so much admiration for him, they were just like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. The Tar Heels threw everything at him. They tried four different players on him, seven footers. Nobody, they weren't gonna start. And again, the teams double and triple team him all season. And then there was this moment late in the second half that became the singular play of Bias's career. Maryland set up in a half-court set. Jeff Baxter had the ball at the top of the key, and he threw it to Bias on the left wing. Bias from outside, and he got it. Carolina's Warren Martin took it out from under the net and threw a quick inbounds pass to Kenny Smith. And then... Oh my! And he made the steal and a jam! What a play by Bias! Bias stole it before Smith could even turn. And in one motion, he went up and he threw down a reverse dunk. It was fluid, powerful. It happened in the blink of an eye. Here, it was only a five-point game, but even when you rewatch it, you can see. This was the moment Lynn Bias squashed Carolina's hopes. Eventually, the game went to overtime and Maryland pulled away to win, 77-72, handing Carolina their first ever loss at the Dean Dome. Here's Lefty. I told my players after the game, I told them, I said, look, 
you all bring your grandchildren back and watch North Carolina play. And then you can tell them, say, look, we put the first defeat on these guys. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> and that will always be in history, right? And Leonard played great that game. Or he played great. And like I said, after the game, he played like Superman. And he, he was just about Superman. So, all of this, the incredible athleticism, the unbridled star power, the dominance of the ACC, it evokes a natural comparison. A comparison to someone Bias played against earlier in his college career on that very same campus. A lot of people compare him or say, who's the best, Bias or Michael Jordan? Maybe it seems preposterous, since Jordan is the best player ever. But at the time, Jordan was still a rising star, and Bias seemed to be just a couple years behind him, but on the same kind of trajectory. Even broaching the topic can feel like a sacrilege. But Wilbon, who's from Chicago, says it's a worthwhile conversation. It's completely merited. Completely. We knew it at the time. It wasn't like we had to wait for Lenny to tragically die before making the comparison. He points to an offsided quote by Duke coach Mike Shashevsky. Mike Shashevsky said, yeah, there are two players who defined at the highest level of talent my time in the ACC. Michael Jordan and Len Bias. Now, we'll spend some time later on in this series teasing out what Bias's NBA career could have looked like. But for now, just know that there was a moment where Bias and Jordan felt like equals. Here's Van Pelt. There's a black and white, somewhat out of focus picture on a wall in my basement of Len Bias rising up to shoot, and Michael Jordan's hand extended. And there's a grainy YouTube video of those two playing a game in Cole Fieldhouse that I would encourage you to watch because it's, it's a different era, the, the style of play, but the talent of Leonard and Michael is so obvious, it just jumps out of your computer screen. It's natural to imagine what a rivalry between Bias and Jordan could have looked like in the NBA. By 1986, Jordan was establishing himself as the league's next great superstar. Bias seemed on track to join him. As the draft approached, it felt like he was destined for one team, the Boston Celtics. He'd attended a Celtics camp after his junior year, and he loved it. The Celtics were enamored of Bias too. Now, ordinarily, the reigning NBA champions wouldn't have had a chance at a top prospect like Bias. But Boston had made a trade in 1984 for Seattle's first round pick, which turned into the second overall pick in 86. So a team that already had Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, and Bill Walton, adding a star rookie who could extend their dynasty, it almost seemed unfair. Here's a taste of what Boston media members told me their city was feeling at the time. Larry Bird did say that he was really excited about having Bias on the team. And you visualized in your head Bird throwing no-look passes to Bias for those ferocious dunks that uh, you see on all the Maryland highlights. And you're like, wow, Boston's about to, <laughs> they're about to go back to back. I don't think it was hyperbole to say that Len Bias was going to be something special. I, he had all the tools to be a great player for a long time, and he was going to be the bridge. So on June 17th, 1986, Bias and his father flew up to New York. The draft wasn't the big production then than it is now. 
It was in the afternoon, not prime time. College coaches didn't come, and while players wore nice suits, it was nothing like the game of fashion one-upmanship that happens today. Still, for the players there, it was one of the defining moments of their lives. Lynn was excited. Everyone was excited. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. He walked on stage, he shook David Stern's hand, and he smiled. I consider myself lucky, but more blessed. Um, have an opportunity to play here, to be drafted here. I think it's a gift within itself. Lenise Bias wasn't there that day. She stayed home, back in Maryland, watching the draft with her other children. We were excited that day. We were just thrilled. I mean, I, I can't even explain it. It's like, is this really happening? And for me, it was unbelievable that it was happening to us because these types of things happen to other people. And yet, that nagging dread, that premonition, that was still there. That knowing, that feeling was there in the back. Lynn didn't return home until the next day. He brought back sneakers and swag for his siblings. Lenise, though, was out at a meeting when he arrived. By the time Lenise got back home, Lynn had gone out, back over to campus to celebrate with his friends, to bask in the excitement of achieving his dream. The fact is, I never saw Lynn after he returned from the draft. When I saw him again, he was in the hospital dead. This season on What If. I said, what is it, Leonard Byers? And he said, I can't tell you that. They just want you to over here at the hospital. I want you to come over. Remember, you don't know anything at that point. You don't know what happened. Was he murdered? What, what the hell happened? Was it a hit and run accident? What was it? Someone had to pay. Plain and simple. Someone had to pay. There was a reckoning that's necessary. I mean, if something like that happened, I think everyone asks themselves, well, what role did we play in allowing this to happen? One of the greatest lies told about cocaine was that it didn't have any side effects. And that, you know, another one of the lies, if you could afford it, it wasn't that. The city itself just, it wasn't mourning. It was a mourning for someone they never met. They were mourning for the child they never had, for the star that they never were going to see blossom. What If, The Lynn Bias Story, is written and reported by me, Jordan Ritter-Kahn. Our producers are Noah Malale, Bobby Wagner, Hannah Beal, and Isaac Lee, with production assistance by Isaiah Blakely. Music and sound design by Isaac Lee. Story editing by Mallory Rubin. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. And fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.